Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 307 for January 16th, 2022. And we've got kind of a combo show for you today. We've got uh, a New Year's resolutions show, which I was going to do a couple weeks ago. And because of the last pass breach, that kind of got thrown off. And then Data Privacy Week starts next week. It used to be Data Privacy Day. Uh, it's an international thing. Uh, but they've expanded it to Data Privacy Week. And of course, you know, every week should be Data Privacy Week. But it's a time of the year when we focus on privacy. So we're going to kind of combine all that today with a news show. We've got a, a really big combo show for you today. I'm going to have some articles on data privacy. I'm going to have some tips that are around privacy. But around this time of year, I usually update the data privacy checklist. I have one article that I just keep updating every year. And then I usually have a blog article that kind of points to that for each year, you know, to celebrate data privacy week. Uh, anyway, there's some great stuff there. I haven't updated it yet, except to change my uh, LastPass recommendation to Bitwarden. But I will be doing a more thorough uh, updating of the data privacy checklist to make sure that everything is up to date, make sure it's got all my latest tips in it, uh, probably in the next week or so. So keep an eye out for that. There's a link in the show notes to that article, which if you you know just check back, it will be updated. So I want to mention again, before we go any further, please answer my listener survey, my annual listener survey. I do this every January. I run it for the whole month. But it's really easy to forget about and put off and not do. Uh, and so I would love to get your feedback, good or bad. In fact, good is really important because otherwise all I hear about is people who want me to change something. So if you really like the format and you like the, what I'm doing, uh, that's really good for me to know. And it's good for me to know that a lot of people like the format and maybe only one person wants me to totally change something. So there's a link in the show notes, but you should be able to easily remember this. It's just fdsd.me slash survey 2023. So please do that as soon as you can. It will run through the end of January, but again, it's, it's so easy to forget and put off. It's better if you do it sooner rather than later. Also, a quick update on the fifth edition of my book. It is getting very, very close to being published. You can pre-order it on Amazon. And for right now, for some reason, I have no idea how long this will last. It is on crazy discount. I, <laughs> I don't know why Amazon does this, but they have it on sale right now for over 60% off list price, which is just crazy for a book that hasn't even come out yet. Now, the list price is still wrong. Currently, it says $55. I believe that's going to be $40 when the dust settles. That should actually be changed this week. And I suppose that might mean it will get even cheaper, but I doubt it. This is weird. I've been watching the price of the book. It has not been this low. It's something weird is going on. But it, for whatever reason, now would be a great time to pre-order my book or maybe multiple copies of the book. That's a great price. I am hoping that the book will be available maybe not by next week's uh, show, but certainly, hopefully, no later than next week. All right, so today is a new show. I got plenty of stories to cover. I'm going to give you another quick LastPass update. And spoiler alert: things have been getting worse, or we've been learning more things that make me want to push people away from LastPass. And then I've got some news articles for you. We're going to talk about uh, how a government watchdog spent fifteen thousand dollars to crack a federal agency's passwords in minutes. Norton LifeLock is warning that some people have gotten into their password manager accounts. Russian hackers appear to be behind a, a Royal Mail cyber attack that has caused a lot of grief in the UK. Iran's citizens are being targeted by spyware that's being embedded in VPN apps. Windows 7 is now officially dead. I mean, it's sort of been dead for a long time, but now I guess it's super official. Identity thieves have figured out a way to bypass experience security to view credit reports. You've probably seen some articles in the news about robot vacuum cleaners posting images of their owners 
Uh, it's not quite what you think, but it's still not good. The FBI, right before Christmas, released a public service announcement that basically told people to use ad blockers. And finally, I've got an article about dozens of telehealth startups that are sharing a lot of very sensitive information with big tech companies. Then I've got a Dear Curry question about beta software and tracking. And then finally, for the tip of the week, we'll talk about some New Year's resolutions that I think you should consider adopting for your to-do list in 2023. So let's get to it. All right, first up, let's do a quick LastPass update. There's not a whole lot of news. LastPass still has not released a lot of information that they should have been releasing by now. It's it's really unconscionable. But I have learned some things that just makes me want to push people further away from LastPass. Not only new people, certainly if you're a new password manager user, do not use LastPass. Use Bitwarden or 1Password. But if you are an existing LastPass user, uh, I, I've basically learned enough at this point that I just can't recommend them at all. Uh, and I would either, you'd have to hurry to do this. You should do the things I talked about last week. You should change your master password and you should start changing your other passwords. If you're at all worried about the strength of your password, I had a really strong password. I'm probably still going to do it just, just so I can sleep at night, you know, knowing that they didn't find some weird way to get around the, uh, the various protections on these vaults. I'm not going to rush to do it, but I am going to start doing it. And then I'm going to move to Bitwarden and I recommend that you do as well. Basically, the update is I, I keep learning more and more that LastPass just did not do enough to protect their users. And those are bad design decisions. Anybody can get hacked. Nothing is 100% secure. Uh, you know, there will be very targeted social engineering attacks that will find some way to get into some of these companies, especially big targets like LastPass, you know, and Microsoft and Apple and some of these companies are, you know, you just have to assume that at some point somewhere, someone's going to get in with even with the best security it's it, it's really hard to be perfectly secure. Nothing is ever perfectly secure. However, as LastPass has been cranking up its security requirements for password length and the number of iterations that you should be using for this password-based key derivation function, which nobody knows about, they should not have allowed users to retain the older, now insecure settings for those. I've heard about multiple people reporting that their password hash iteration count is as low as one, which was the default in 2008. So, you know, if you were a LastPass user from the very beginning and you've never changed this value, it's quite possible that your iteration count, which should be over 100,000, is just one. And, you know, added at 500 and 5,000 for several years. A lot of people are reporting that their values are still set to that. They should have forced everybody to upgrade their values to something more appropriate. So just real quick, to check this, open your vault in your web browser, not on an app or whatever. Go to the web browser and open a tab with your vault. Once you go there, go to your account settings. There's a show advanced button. You have to open that. And then scroll down to password iterations and check the value there. If that value is anything lower than 100,000, that means the attackers are going to have a much easier chance to brute force your vault, no matter what your password was, to try to access its contents. And because they know how many iterations are on that vault, they will probably target those vaults that have the lower count first. So again, change your master password. It won't help the vault that they have because that vault was locked with your old password. 
but change your master password so that if they do figure out your master password, they can't then log into your LastPass account and get up to more mischief. So change your LastPass password, make it strong. I cannot emphasize this enough. That is your primary defense. Make it long, make it as random as possible so that you can still remember it. If you need to, write it on a piece of paper and hide that paper somewhere, you know, at least until you can memorize it or, you know, as a backup, but make it at least 12 characters long. And then tack on a few extra characters just for the heck of it. This is called password haystacks. Uh, just make it longer. So, you know, come up with your crazy password that, you know, you're going to have a hard time remembering, but you're going to commit it to memory because it's the only one you need to know as your master password. And then add three or four more characters to it, even if they're the same character. You know, three periods, three dashes, three equal signs, three plus signs. Put them at the front of your password, whatever. Just adding those extra characters makes it much, much more difficult to hack with you know, password cracking tools. And then once you've done that, start going through and changing your key passwords, particularly those accounts that are not already protected by two-factor authentication. As you find accounts that don't have two-factor authentication turned on and it's available, do that. All right, I'm not going to go through this all again. I've covered this in great detail in the in, in my blog article on this. So go to the LastPass Breach article on uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll get a lot more information there. But one thing I do want to mention while I'm talking about this, the uh, thought that I had as I'm going through uh, all this LastPass stuff is why at this point do we not have a standard cryptographically secure protocol and an API for changing passwords? That just makes so much sense. Why? Well, first of all, that would mean your password manager could automatically change or update all your passwords for you with a click of a button. There's a breach. And someone says, oh, well, you know, let's say Yahoo was breached. A lot of the password managers now, you know, working with services like Have I Been Pwned uh, will tell you, hey, this there's been a breach at this site. Your email was actually discovered in the, the breach data that was published on the dark web. You might want to change your password. Well, why not be able to check a box and say, you know what, when that happens, just go change my password for me. I don't know what my password is anyway. You picked it in the first place, you being the password manager. It was generated by the password manager. So in that case, I authorize you that whenever you get notice of a data breach, just go change my password for me and let me know that it happened. Also, when you're entering passwords on web pages, we still don't have a standard form page for this. And password managers struggle with this because you go to some page and it's got some weird non-standard login page and it doesn't know how to properly fill in your password. At this day and age, especially with something with security, that's just, we can't have that anymore. It's a total mess and it shouldn't be. And this protocol, if we were to, to define such a thing and standardize it, that would mean that the websites could just have an automated way of telling your password manager, okay, I need a password that's 16 characters to 20 characters. It can include all these characters except these two for some dumb reason. And you know, these are all my restrictions on passwords. That could all be part of the protocol, and you would never even have to know. So you just go to that site and you generate a password, and you wouldn't even have to try to customize that based on their dumb rules. That would be communicated to your password manager, and it would know the parameters for for creating a new password, and it would just do it. This is long overdue. I have no idea why this is not already a thing. And one more thought that occurred to me as I was reading more and more articles about the last pass breach and making sure that I've got enough information for you guys is what happens if instead of stealing my vault, what if somebody just destroys my vault? What if someone tried to hold my vault for ransom? So they get hold of my vault, they could go to the trouble of trying to get to all my accounts, but maybe it's worth more to me than it is to them. So maybe they just re-encrypt my vault. 
Or if they're malicious, maybe they just delete my vault. Now what? Now when I go to log in, my LastPass vault will sync, and when it synchronizes and there's nothing in it, then all of my devices will now have an empty vault. So there also should be an, a way for me to back up my vault in a secure fashion. And you can export your vault, which is unencrypted. And that currently, really, for most people, is probably the easiest way for you to back up your vault. You just have to make sure that you secure that unencrypted vault file so that it's not just sitting on your computer for you know malware to find or to sync to the cloud and then your cloud service gets hacked. So we also need better ways to back up our vaults. There is a link in the show notes with a kind of a clunky way to do it. But just thinking about it, you could export your password vault, which is fairly easy to do. Again, that would be an unencrypted export. So everything in there is wide open for anybody who gets a copy of that file. So you don't want that file laying around. And then I would encrypt that file. Or you could put it into a CryptoMator encrypted folder, something like that. And then, of course, you have to, <laughs> of course, you have to generate a strong encryption password for that and be able to remember it. So you probably wouldn't want to put that in your LastPass vault. Ah, what a pain in the butt. Password list stuff and passkey stuff will help some of this, but it still won't solve all these problems. And something else that I've kind of thought about as I'm going through this is I might want to segregate my secrets. You know, that is for passwords that I want to be able to synchronize easily to all my devices. That's something I would use Bitwarden for. But, you know, maybe things like social security numbers and credit card numbers or something that I might not use as much synchronized between devices. Uh, maybe I might store that in a separate password manager like KeePass or something that's purely local. But I do talk about a lot of these things in that LastPass article. So anyway, that that's kind of where my one-stop shop is for this information. Find that article. I do update it from time to time. So maybe even bookmark it and check back. All right, let's move on. All right, the first news article this week is from TechCrunch. I've got actually a few from TechCrunch this week. And it's about a government watchdog group that has found some really bad security problems with the Department of the Interior here in the United States. And it's an object lesson for any government office. And so anyway, let me, let me read this article. A government watchdog has published a scathing rebuke of the Department of Interior's cybersecurity posture, finding it was able to crack thousands of employee user accounts because the department's security policies allow easily guessable passwords like password1234. The report by the Office of the Inspector General of the Department of the Interior, tasked with oversight of the U.S. executive agency that manages the country's federal land, national parks, and a budget of billions of dollars, said that the department's reliance on passwords as the sole way of protecting some of its most important systems and employees' user accounts has bucked nearly two decades of the government's own cybersecurity guidance of mandating stronger two-factor authentication. It includes that poor password policies put the department at risk of a breach that could lead to a quote-unquote high probability of massive disruption to its operations. The watchdog staffers said that relying on claims that passwords meeting the department's minimum security requirements would take more than hundreds of years to recover using off-the-shelf password cracking software has created a quote false sense of security unquote that its passwords are secure in large part because of the commercial availability of computing power available today. To make their point, the watchdog spent less than $15,000 on building a password cracking rig, a setup of high-performance computer or several chain together, with the computing power designed to take on complex mathematical tasks like recovering hashed passwords. Within the first 90 minutes, the watchdog was able to recover nearly 14,000 employee passwords, or about 16% of all department accounts, including passwords like 
polar underscore bear 65 and national parks 2014 exclamation point. The watchdog also recovered hundreds of accounts belonging to senior government employees and other accounts with elevated security privileges for accessing sensitive data and systems. Another 4,200 hash passwords were cracked over an additional eight weeks of testing. So this article goes on, but basically what happened is these guys built a custom password cracking computer setup, which is not that hard to do. And you can see that it doesn't cost really that much. I mean, if you if you want to get into a U.S. government account, $15,000 is nothing. And what they did was, as part of this investigation, is they had the department, you know, basically say, give me your password vault so that we can test these passwords. And they ran this rig against people's passwords and in very short order, cracked 16% of all the accounts because their passwords weren't good enough. Now, keep in mind that these things are really not that hard to come by. You can rent time on these kind of systems on the web for honor bucks. And right now there's a lot of Bitcoin mining rigs out there, computers that were built with very similar specifications with a lot of basically a lot of GPU power. They're just sitting idle because, because a lot of people have given up on mining Bitcoin. And these same systems could very easily be converted to password cracking systems. So bottom line, again, when it comes to passwords, length matters. It's probably the most important thing. Make it random enough that they have to do brute force attacks and then just make it as long as you can. All right, next up, this is from Bleeping Computer, and it reports that Norton LifeLock has warned a lot of its users about potential breaches of their accounts. Gen Digital, formerly Symantec Corp and Norton LifeLock, is sending data breach notifications to customers, informing them that hackers have successfully breached Norton password manager accounts in credential stuffing attacks. According to a letter sample shared with the Office of the Vermont Attorney General, the attacks did not result from a breach of the company, but from account compromise on other platforms. The notice explains that around December 1st, 2022, an attacker used username and password pairs that they bought from the dark web to attempt to log into Norton customer accounts. The firm detected, quote, an unusually large volume, unquote, of failed login attempts on December 12th, 2022 indicating credential stuffing attacks where threat actors try out credentials in bulk. By December 22, 2022, the company had completed its internal investigation, which revealed that the credential stuffing attacks had successfully compromised an undisclosed number of customer accounts. Now, they did disclose some data, which I'll talk about at the end of this article. For customers utilizing the Norton Password Manager feature, the notice warns that the attackers might have obtained details in their private vaults. Depending on what users store in their accounts, this could lead to the compromise of other online accounts, loss of digital assets, exposure of secrets, and more. Norton LifeLock underlines that the risk is especially large for those who use similar Norton account passwords and password manager master keys, allowing the attackers to pivot more easily. In other words, if you reuse those passwords somewhere else, then they're likely to try using those passwords on other products too, and they'd probably start with other Norton products. The company says it has reset Norton passwords on impacted accounts to prevent attackers from gaining access to them again in the future, and also implemented additional measures to counter the malicious attempts. Norton LifeLock also advises customers to enable two-factor authentication to protect their accounts and take up the offer for credit monitoring service. Now, there was an update to this article and a response from um, Gen Digital, and they said, quote, Gen's family of brands offers products and services to approximately 500 million users we have secured 925,000 inactive and active accounts that may have been targeted by credential stuffing attacks. All right. So again, what happened here is 
the bad guys got people's usernames and passwords from some other breach somewhere else. This is often you know, sold on the dark web. And so what they do when they get these lists of usernames and passwords that work on one account is they say, well, I know people reuse their passwords all the time. So first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take this same username and password and try it at a whole bunch of other places. And Norton, Norton LifeLock found that in late December, right before Christmas, right when people's guard is down and they're busy doing other things, they took these sets of known working usernames and passwords for other accounts and tried them against a whole bunch of Norton LifeLock accounts and apparently were successful in getting in to some of these accounts. And if you happen to be using their password manager service and they were able to get into your password manager account with these credentials, then of course, like with the LastPass breach, now they've got the keys to all your other accounts. So if you were affected by this, if they found that people were doing this, you have probably already been notified. And if you had had two-factor authentication on your account in this particular case, you would have been protected. Unlike the LastPass case where they kind of went around the front door, went to the back door and just stole everybody's vaults. This would be a case where they were trying to log into your account online. So if they gotten past the first part with the username and password, if you had two-factor authentication turned on, they would have then been blocked unless they had access to your cell phone or something. So the main takeaway here for everybody, whether or not you're a Norton user or not, is please use two-factor authentication, especially on super important things like this. All right, next up. This is from metro.co.uk, and it's about a cyber attack on the Royal Mail. A ransomware group with links to Russia is suspected to be behind this week's cyber attack disrupting Royal Mail's international export services, and this would be actually last week. The Postal Service received a ransom note allegedly from Lockbit, a hacker group widely thought to have close links to Russia, as reported by The Telegraph. Printers at a Royal Mail distribution site near Belfast in Northern Ireland reportedly started printing ransom notes that said, quote, Lockbit Black Ransomware, your data are stolen and encrypted, unquote. On Wednesday, Royal Mail told customers sending parcels abroad that it was facing, quote, severe service disruption, unquote, due to a cyber incident. The company asked customers to refrain from submitting new items for international delivery, although domestic services and imports were unaffected. A statement said that it was temporarily unable to dispatch export items, including letters and parcels, to overseas destinations. Royal Mail had reported the incident to the UK's government-run National Cybersecurity Center, the National Crime Agency, and the Information Commissioner's Office. And this is a quote from Jake Moore. He's a global cybersecurity analyst at ESET. He says, quote, Lockbit is a ransomware attack which couples extortion attacks. It automatically looks for potential suspects and then spreads the infection and encrypts all accessible computer systems on a network. Once data has been stolen and encrypted, the extortion tactics occur in order to make more money even if a backup process is in place. There are no existing lockbit decryption tools, unquote. And I'll circle back to that in a minute. Organizations in the United States, China, India, Indonesia, Ukraine, France, the UK, and Germany have been past victims of this type of attack. It's unclear when Royal Mail will be able to resume international deliveries or if it will comply with ransom demands. Another quote from Moore here, and Jake says, quote, I always advise never to pay the ransom as it ultimately funds future cyber attacks, but I know the pressure is usually forced upon them in these situations, and, and all the while, hindsight looms on them. Paying ransoms will never guarantee the safe redelivery of the data and can often bring further problems, financially and physically, unquote. Moore thinks that this will be a wake-up call for Royal Mail and other companies to update, reassess, and better protect their systems. 
So real quick, Moore says that there are no existing lockbit decryption tools. These guys make mistakes too. Ransomware uh, organizations often make mistakes with their products. And while they do uh, encrypt everything, sometimes they screw it up and there's a way to get past that to decrypt it without having to pay ransom. What he's basically saying is that right now that we don't know of anything like that. There are no tools to to get your data back without paying the ransom. And as far as this being a wake-up call goes, yeah, sure. This and all the other incidents that have occurred in the last 10 years, they were all wake-up calls. We have obviously been ignoring these wake-up calls and we still have a long way to go. All right, next up, this is from Tech Monitor, and it's about some spyware in Iran. Second Eye, which was developed in Iran, is marketed as a parenting or employee surveillance tool, but has been converted into spyware called iSpy. The malware is deployed hidden in free VPN packages, which have increased in popularity since the Iranian government's digital blackout, which has left citizens without access to the internet during the recent civil unrest. Once the spyware has been downloaded, the victim has effectively enabled round-the-clock digital surveillance on their device. And this is a quote from a report published uh, by uh, Bitdefender. Quote, The malware steals sensitive information from an infected system, stored passwords, crypto wallet data, documents and images, contents from clipboard and logs of key presses, unquote, can all be monitored. This sort of access can lead to complete account takeovers, identity theft and financial loss. Another quote from the report. Quote, moreover, by logging key presses, attackers can obtain messages typed by the victim on social media or email, which can be used to blackmail victims, unquote. According to the findings, reports of the malware being deployed have escalated since a digital blackout was imposed by the Iranian government, cutting off internet access to many citizens. These measures were put in place in response to political unrest triggered by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in September, allegedly at the hands of Iranian police. Amini's death led to protests on the streets of many Iranian cities and around the world. So I bring this up just because it's an interesting news story. It's certainly a a big in current events, but also just to demonstrate that you have to be very careful when you're installing apps from unknown sources, and you probably should be especially leery about free ones. You know, these services do cost money, so they got to make money somewhere. Oftentimes, these things are laced with malware. Sometimes they're just laced with tracking software because these companies you know, crank out this software and they've reused somebody's framework. And that framework includes tracking software. VPNs by nature have to have a lot of access, a lot of privileged access. So they need certain permissions. And when you grant those permissions, uh, that just makes them even better spying tools. So unfortunately, these are the kind of tools that folks in repressive regimes like Iran need to circumvent these digital blackouts, but they also come with a lot of risks. All right, next up, this is a story about Windows 7. It is now really, truly officially dead, like Generalissimo Francisco Franco, still dead. And this is from Lifehacker. Windows 7 launched in October of 2009. While Microsoft officially ended support for Windows 7 on January 14th, 2020, this week it's truly officially dead. If you're still using it, or Windows 8.1 for that matter, you really shouldn't be. Microsoft will pull the plug on software support for the Extended Security Update, or ESU, program for Windows 7 on Tuesday, January 10th. This program provided a three-year paid exception to Microsoft's abandoning of Windows 7 for professional and enterprise users who relied on the operating system to run specific software. As of this week, however, even ESU customers will find their versions of Windows 7 as unsupported as the rest. 
it's not only Windows 7 whose time is up. Microsoft is also officially dropping extended support for Windows 8.1, which came out in October of 2013. In addition, many third-party developers are likewise dropping support for aging versions of Windows. Google is ending Chrome support for Windows 7 and 8.1 on Tuesday, and Microsoft Edge 109 will be these Windows versions' last Edge update, too. When a developer like Microsoft drops support for its own software, it doesn't mean that the software itself stops working. After Tuesday, you'll still be able to boot up PCs running Windows 7 or 8.1, and more than likely it will run the same way it ran on Monday. The same goes for Chrome and Edge. However, the issue isn't really that Microsoft is done adding new features to Windows 7. That ship sailed long ago. Rather, the problem is that the company will no longer issue new security patches, which makes running Windows 7 and 8.1 particularly dangerous in 2023. Security patches are a necessary part of digital life. Software is inherently flawed, and those flaws are eventually discovered by developers, researchers, or bad actors. If the wrong people figure out how to exploit those flaws against users, it can empower them to take over your computer and steal your data or hold it for ransom. While these risks exist with any operating system, developers are typically diligent about patching vulnerabilities as they're discovered. A security hole isn't any good to a hacker if their victims can patch it up with the latest software update. But if those updates are never coming, which is now the case with Windows 7 and 8.1, it's open season for hackers looking for any easy mark. Windows 7 has had a very good run, technologically speaking, and the sad truth is, after nearly 13 years, it is officially unsafe for everyone to use. And seeing as roughly 11% of the computers in the world are still running it, it's going to be a rough transition going forward. So yeah, uh, if you're still running a PC somewhere with either Windows 7 or Windows 8.1, you need to get them updated. And because the computers that they're running on are probably also old, you may actually have some issues trying to get to Windows 10 or Windows 11 if the, the computer hardware doesn't support some of the security features required by those operating systems, particularly Windows 11. So it may just be time to get yourself a new computer. But this article is absolutely correct. Once these operating systems in particular, once these operating systems are no longer receiving security updates, it is a ticking time bomb. There are still bugs in that software. They will be found and they will be exploited if they haven't been already. So if you're running an old PC with Windows 7 or Windows 8.1, get that operating system updated or just get yourself a new computer. All right, next, this is from Krebs on Security, and it's about a rather egregious bypass of security and getting people's credit reports from Experian. Identity thieves have been exploiting a glaring security weakness in the website of Experian, one of the big three consumer credit bureaus. Normally, Experian requires that those seeking a copy of their credit report successfully answer several multiple-choice questions about their financial history. But until the end of 2022, Experian's website allowed anyone to bypass these questions and go straight to the consumer's report. All that was needed was the person's name, address, birthday, and social security number. In December, Krebs on Security heard from Jenya Kushner, a security researcher living in Ukraine, who said he discovered the method being used by identity thieves after spending time on Telegram chat channels dedicated to the cashing out of compromised identities. Following Kushner's instructions, I sought a copy, and I being Krebs in this case, sought a copy of my credit report from Experian via the annualcreditreport.com, a website that is required to provide all Americans with a free copy of their credit report from each of the three major reporting bureaus once per year. Annualcreditreport.com begins by asking your name, address, social security number, and birthday. 
After I supplied that and told annualcreditreport.com I wanted my report from Experian, I was taken to Experian.com to complete the identity verification process. Normally at this point, Experian's website would present four or five multiple guest questions such as, which of the following addresses have you lived at? Kushner told me that when the questions page loads, you simply change the last part of the URL or the address from slash ACR slash OOW slash to slash ACR slash report, and the site would display the consumer's full credit report. But when I tried to get my report from Experian via annualcreditreport.com, Experian's website said I didn't have enough information to validate my identity. It wouldn't even show me the four multiple guest questions. Experian said I had three options for a free credit report at this point. Mail a request along with identity documents, call a phone number for Experian, or upload proof of identity via the website. But that didn't stop Experian from showing me my full credit report after I changed the Experian URL as Kushner had instructed, modifying the error page's trailing URL from slash ACR slash OCW error to simply slash ACR slash report. Experian's website then immediately displayed my entire credit file. Krebs on Security shared Kushner's findings with Experian on December 23rd, 2022. On December 27th, Experian... Experience PR team acknowledged the receipt of my December 23 notification, but the company has so far ignored multiple requests for comment or clarification. By the time Experian confirmed receipt of my report, the exploit Kushner had learned from the identity thieves on Telegram had been patched and no longer worked, but it remains unclear how long Experian's website was making it so easy to access anyone's credit report. Okay, so there was a lot more information in that article. I just gave you the highlights. Now, of course, you still need, you know, a couple of really key pieces of information there, you know, name and address that might not be the hard to find, but social security number is still hard to get. And then birthday, got to get the birthday, right? So you still need that information to get this. And of course you would have had to know how to work around this thing to get the report. But this guy found out about this, this uh, security researcher found out about it on telegram channels where bad guys exchange this sort of information. So it was definitely known in the hacker community that this was a bug and they were actively exploiting it. So this is, this is a tough one because you can't take your business elsewhere. You are not a customer of the credit bureaus. You are their product. But what you can do a couple things, you can, you can make it expensive for them to do this because they make money off your credit report. They make money off of getting information to, you know, people wanting to know things about you. So if you freeze your credit, that will prevent them from selling your information, from making money off your information, at least for anybody you do not already have an existing relationship with. It is now free to do this in the United States with all three of those bureaus, so there's really no reason not to do it. I recommend everybody do this, unless for some reason you are constantly getting new credit or constantly applying for jobs or something like that. That might make it a pain in the butt, but honestly, it's really your best defense against identity theft, and it prevents these guys from making money off of you which is, you know, a little way to kind of put a thorn in their side. All right. And this next one's from Kaspersky. And you, you may have seen something about this on the, on the news, but it's about robot vacuum cleaners with cameras built into them and finding some rather compromising pictures online taken by these robots. Now there's, there's some caveats to the story. So let me read this and then we'll talk about it. Some alarming photos have been circulating online recently, taking by, yes, a robot vacuum cleaner. The owner of a too smart device is captured right on the toilet. Not every robot vacuum cleaner is fitted with a camera. 
The user manual will usually list all of its sensors and their location. Some models are limited to touch sensors as well as laser and ultrasonic radars, but it's becoming increasingly common to see a camera listed as well. Top of the range models have uh, been using cameras for more than five years to better navigate the room. According to engineers, it helps swerve around socks on the floor, laptop wires, and other obstacles. Some vacuum cleaners also have a microphone to respond to voice commands. So who views the camera footage? Most of the time, no one. Normally, the video stream from the camera goes to the vacuum cleaner CPU and no further. But there may be exceptions to this rule. In particular, the toilet photo scandal occurred when a prototype of the Roomba J7 vacuum cleaner sent its video stream to the manufacturer iRobot to improve the algorithm. To enhance machine vision systems, engineers need not just video from the camera, but annotated video, with all furniture items identified and labeled correctly. The initial markup of photo and video content is done by humans. Then a computer is trained on these examples, and specialists check the quality of recognition and correct errors. So iRobot outsourced the video to Scale AI, a specialized contractor with a whole staff of low-paid employees who spend hours marking objects on photos and videos. It was these subcontractors from Venezuela who leaked the, in their opinion, highly amusing photos to a Facebook group. Most likely, they were disciplined, and iRobot terminated its contract with Scale AI, but the leaked photos did not go away. iRobot claims that all prototypes come with appropriate warnings and are handed over to testers only with their written consent to record video. That is, you can't accidentally purchase such a vacuum cleaner in a store. Case closed? Not really. The development of smart home electronics, especially autonomous robots, is not possible without mass collection of data. I would take issue with that statement. Only by analyzing billions, even trillions of samples can any machine learning system actually learn something. This is one of the main reasons there is almost always a clause in the lengthy product license agreement asking you for your consent to collect quote-unquote diagnostic data to improve products and services. At the same time, you rarely see this data specified in detail, and what is required to quote-unquote improve products and services is never explained. Sometimes the agreement explicitly states that data will not be sold or used for commercial purposes, but the product improvement often means that it will get processed by subcontractors or partners. In most cases, then, it's impossible to know what data is being collected and where it will end up. Even assuming the manufacturer of the robot vacuum cleaner is ethically pure, the fate of harvested data is not always ideal. It can lie for ages on the company's servers, where its protection is not a priority. So, in addition to subcontractors, complete outsiders may suddenly gain access to it, from security researchers to cybercriminals or hacktivists. Another, albeit more exotic, threat is the hacking of the vacuum cleaner itself. Controlled by an attacker, it could be used for non-standard purposes, including, of course, various forms of spying. So there's actually a much, much longer in-depth article on this from uh, the Technology Review. And so if you want to read that, there's a bonus link in the, art, in the, in the show notes if you want to get into the more depth in this. But this is just another case of, <laughs> of smart, in this case, the article says too smart, devices being chock full of sensors to do some really cool and fun stuff. But those sensors can also be used to... Well, to spy on you, but also to collect a lot of data that, that the manufacturer thinks that they need to do their job. But if they don't take good care of that data, it could end up in the wrong hands. Now, in this case, this was a prototype. This was kind of a beta trial thing where somebody agreed to take this 
this device that wasn't quite fully baked yet uh, so that they could improve the product before they released it. So this person, I'm sure, signed some extra special documentation uh, about this device, knowing full well that this device, the whole point of being a trial tester for this device was so that they could learn more about how it works and help correct errors, uh, which meant it was going to be collecting a lot of data. But as this article goes on to say, these things do have all these sensors built in. And even though most of this data is probably processed locally on the device, there are often times in the terms of, uh, of service when you agree to use this device that they will say that, you know, to improve things in the future, we may send some information to partners, quote unquote, to try to improve our data, yada, yada, yada. They'll say that it's all anonymous and whatever, but you know, with facial recognition technology, if I take a picture of you in the shower or <laughs> naked in bed with somebody else, if those things get loose, they can still be identified. It's, it's just not good. Again, it's just, it, it's just a wild, wild west with, in terms of privacy, we've got to, we've got to fix this. And transparency is the first step, but at, at the end of the day, we just need regulation. All right, next up, another article from TechCrunch, and this was about a public service announcement put out by the FBI uh, right before Christmas. In a pre-holiday public service announcement, the FBI said that cybercriminals are buying ads to impersonate legitimate brands like cryptocurrency exchanges. Ads are often placed at the top of search results, but with quote-unquote minimum distinction between the ads and the search results, the Fed say, which can look identical to the brands that the cybercriminals are impersonating. Malicious ads are also used to trick victims into installing malware disguised as genuine apps, which can steal passwords and deploy file encrypting ransomware. One of the FBI's recommendations for consumers is to install an ad blocker. As the name suggests, ad blockers are web browser extensions that broadly block online ads from loading in your browser, including in search results. By blocking ads, would-be victims are not shown any ads at all, making it easier to find and access the websites of legitimate brands. Ad blockers don't just remove the enormous bloat from websites like auto-playing video and splashy ads that take up half the page which make your computer fans run like jet engines. Ad blockers are also good for privacy because they prevent the tracking code within ads from loading. That means that ad companies like Google and Facebook cannot track you as you browse the web or learn which websites you visit or infer what things you might be interested in based on your web history. The good news is that some of the best ad blockers out there are free and can be installed and largely forgotten. If you're looking for a widely recommended ad blocker, uBlock Origin is a simple, low-memory ad blocker that works for most browsers like Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, Microsoft Edge, and Opera. Plus, the extension is open source, so anyone could look at the code and make sure it is safe to run. So, yeah, I've been recommending uBlock Origin and ad blockers in general for many years for this exact same reason, not just because of the tracking, which is highly beneficial, but because there is such thing as malvertising. And that's what this is talking about. And I just think it was interesting to know that the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations here in the United States, a government entity, was basically recommending that people install ad blockers. That's how bad it has become. All right, one more news article for today. And this was this is this is a doozy. It's very, very disturbing. Uh, it's from the markup. Open the website of Work at Health and the path to treatment starts with a simple intake form. Are you in danger of harming yourself or others? If not, what's your current opioid and alcohol use? How much methadone do you use? Within minutes, patients looking for online treatment for opioid use and other addictions can complete the assessment and book a video visit with a provider licensed to prescribe 
suboxone, S-U-B-O-X-O-N-E, I'm not familiar with that drug, and other drugs. But what patients probably don't know is that Workit was sending their delicate, even intimate answers about drug use and self-harm to Facebook. A joint investigation by STAT and the markup of 50 direct-to-consumer telehealth companies like Workit found that quick online access to medications often comes with a hidden cost for patients. Virtual care websites were leaking sensitive medical information they collect to the world's largest advertising platforms. On 13 of the 15 websites, we documented at least one tracker that collects patients' answers to medical intake questions, and they listed uh, those trackers as either from Meta, Google, TikTok, Bing, Snap, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Pinterest. Trackers on 25 sites, including those run by industry leaders Him and Hers, Roe, and 30 Madison, told at least one big tech platform that the user had added an item like a prescription medication to their cart or checked out with a subscription for a treatment plan. The trackers that Stat and the markup were able to detect and what information they sent is a floor, not a ceiling. Companies choose where to install trackers on their websites and how to configure them. Different pages of a company's website can have different trackers, and we did not test every page on each company's site. All but one website examined sent URLs users visited on the site and their IP addresses to at least one tech company. The only telehealth platform we didn't observe sharing data with outside tech giants was Amazon Clinic, a platform recently launched by Amazon. And I will just stop here to say that that is most likely because Amazon is the tracker in this case. (laughs) Amazon is doing this telehealth stuff, is getting into prescription drugs and this sort of stuff precisely because they want to know more about you. So there was no one to sell it to. They were already the people who wanted the data. All right, let me go back to the article. Patients may assume that health-related data is always protected by privacy regulations, including HIPAA. Workit, for one, begins its intake form with a promise that, quote, all of the information you share is kept private and is protected by our HIPAA-compliant software, unquote. But the reality online is more complex, making it all but impossible for the average user to know whether the company they're entrusting with their data is is obligated to protect it. Rather than providing care themselves, telehealth companies often act as middlemen, connecting patients to affiliated providers covered by HIPAA. As a result, information collected during a telehealth company's intake may not be protected by HIPAA, while the same information given to the provider would be. In response to questions for the story, representatives from Meta, Google, TikTok, Bing, Snap, and Pinterest said advertisers are responsible for ensuring that they aren't sending sensitive information via the tools. Twitter did not respond to requests for comment. Without updated laws and regulations, experts said patients are left to the whims of rapidly evolving telehealth companies and tech platforms who may choose to change their privacy policies or alter their trackers at any time. So this article was actually much, much longer. It had a lot more information in it, including detailed information about which of these companies were receiving what types of information from whom. So if this is bothering you and maybe you've been working with a telehealth company that you're now worried about your data having been sent to some of these other companies. Or if you just want to learn more about this, uh, see the show notes and find the link to this article. It's quite long and very disturbing. But again, your only options at this point are just not use any of these services. And I don't think that's a good option. I don't think that's the way things should be. These are obviously health issues. These are things that people need help with. It's okay if we have companies that are out there, startups, you know, trying to find ways to get you to the right people, get you the help you need. That's all good. But man, 
This is really sensitive stuff. This is information that nobody has any other right to know but you and your doctor. One way maybe we could solve this is by figuring out a whole new business model for the internet, because advertising is what's driving all of this, and therefore data collection is what's driving the advertising market. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. So we just we have to make it illegal, and then we've got to make these companies comply with basic cybersecurity standards to make sure that your data is being protected. All right, so that was the news for the week. I have a dear Carrie question for you, and this uh, this reader wanted to be anonymous, uh, but their question was simple. It says, by definition, using the beta version of an app makes one more trackable, right? All right, so let's let's define a couple of things. So first of all, what do we mean by beta software? So when you're developing software, you go through phases of development. And at some point you think, okay, everything has been implemented. I've, I've written all the code that does the features for this release of the software. I think I'm done, uh, but we need to go through some testing. So then there's quality assurance or QA. You go through some software testing, but there are some point comes a phase where all that's done. And we're like, okay, now we need to actually get this in the hands of real people and see if it breaks. And so there's usually two phases. There's often an alpha phase and then a beta phase. And those are, of course, uh, Greek letters uh, in the alphabet. And so alpha is the first phase and not all companies do this, but this often would be an internal thing. Like employees would start to use it uh, and they would go through an internal trial. And then beta is usually an external trial. This is where you have contracted with other companies or certain users who have willingly said, I want to try your, your rough and potentially buggy software to help you make it better. And in doing so, I'll probably sign, you know, NDAs or other agreements basically saying, look, we know this is buggy. You're not going to sue us if something goes wrong. And oh, by the way, we're probably going to be collecting a lot of information from this beta software that we wouldn't normally collect. And you therefore agree to do that. Just like we just read with the robot vacuum story. That's kind of a beta situation. So to answer the question, beta software by definition doesn't mean you're more trackable at least not in the sense of like Facebook and Google and some of that kind of stuff. The software is probably no different in that regard uh, from the beta version to the finally released version that, ev that everybody gets. But from an analytics perspective, from a software development and bug hunting perspective, yes, you are probably giving up some analytics and, and diagnostic data that you might not normally be giving up with the regular production version of the software. So as a result, I generally tell most people not to do anything beta, certainly not beta versions of operating systems, but also not beta versions of apps or trial versions of smart devices, unless, you know, you very specifically want to support a company and you maybe are a, an expert user of this kind of device or this kind of software, and you feel that you can actually give valuable feedback to them that would help them improve the product. You know, there are some exceptions. But generally speaking, I would almost always avoid using beta software. All right. So that brings us to the tip of the week, or in this case, tips of the week. And in January of every year, I like to kind of give out some New Year's resolutions. This is the time of year, for whatever reason, we have all collectively adopted this notion that, okay, it's a new calendar year. So we're arbitrarily going to say, the past is the past. I got a whole new year in front of me. Let's wipe the slate clean. Let's do something different. Let's improve things. Uh, for this next calendar year. So anyway, it's a good time to kind of reflect on maybe things that we should have been doing and haven't been doing and think about some ways we might want to improve ourselves in the next year. So at this time of year, I always do a New Year's resolution blog article and newsletter article. 
So now is a great time for the tip of the week to talk about some of the things that I recommended this year. So every year I try to mix it up a little bit. I try not to just do like the top five things every year because then it would be the, probably, probably be the same list every year. So I, I, I try to throw in some new stuff, some different stuff, and then point you back to previous articles so you could go find some, some other ideas if these don't float your boat. So here are a few things that I recommended that you might want to put on your to-do list for new security and privacy things you might want to uh, adopt uh, for 2023. And obviously with the whole LastPass breach thing, I had to put in two of the most common ones, the, the most top tips ever, and that is use a password manager, but just don't use LastPass. We talked about this a lot already, so I'm not going to go too much into it now. If you missed the episode where I talked about the LastPass breach, there's a lot of really good information there, both in my interview with Bob Lord and then my kind of take on the whole thing afterwards. So you might want to go back and listen to that if you haven't, or you could read the article on it as well or both. But please don't let the security breach of LastPass keep you away from using a password manager. On the whole, it is still much, much better. You've got to have long, crazy, unique passwords for all your websites and your brain, your human brain just can't do that. You need a password manager and you want something to generate these these passwords for you and, and take care of them for you and fill them in for you and you won't have to worry about it. Yes, there are downsides. Yes, you are opening yourself up to things like this LastPass breach, but you really need a very strong master password and then you need to protect your accounts with two-factor authentication. Not only your password manager account, your password vault, but all of your other accounts that you can, you really should be using two-factor authentication. I know it's a pain in the butt, but... You need defense in depth. As we like to say, you need belt and suspenders. You really want not just one barrier, but at least two barriers uh, to at least your important online accounts. So there, that's one and two. Those are the first two things on my list because it's become a big thing right now. But I threw out a couple other things that you might might not have thought about. Uh, One is email aliases. And this is a privacy and a security thing. And I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this because I'm actually going to be interviewing the CEO and founder of Simple Login coming up very soon, I think next week. So we're going to talk about this quite a bit. But the idea with email aliases is that just like you shouldn't reuse passwords for all your accounts, it's actually a good idea to change email addresses for your accounts too, because those are now the usernames that required. Back in the old days, you could pick your username, you know, which is why we had really dumb ones like the real John Smith 57, you know, right? Because, you know, any site with a lot of users, there's going to be another John Smith and you're not going to be able to pick that name. So a lot of these sites have started forcing people to use their email addresses, which has, you know, the benefit of being unique. You don't have to worry about it being unique on the site. The trouble is it's also now unique globally, and therefore it makes it a great way to track and correlate your accounts. So how do you have multiple email addresses? Well, again, we're going to talk about some of that later, and you could read the article about this, but there's actually a lot of services today that allow you to generate kind of on the fly random email addresses that will just route to your regular inbox. You don't actually have to have multiple email accounts, though you could use that on some level here. I've actually got kind of a multi-tiered approach to how I do my emails. And I think I did a show on that at one point, but if not, maybe I'll maybe I'll revisit that someday. But basically, if you can have a different email address for these accounts, uh, that will give you some privacy and some security. As we just learned out today, credential stuffing attacks if I know your password for one site, and I know that people like to reuse passwords, I will do credential stuffing attacks, which I will take that username and password and use it on a whole bunch of other sites to see if I can get in. Well, if you've changed email addresses, if you've got a different kind of unique email addresses for all your websites, then I only have half the information I need. So that's, again, that's a security protection, not just a privacy protection. Another tip for you that something that we don't often think about, but you really need to make sure you have emergency access set up for your spouse or your next of kin. 
that's you know we don't like to think about to becoming incapacitated or dying suddenly but if you don't plan ahead of time and something like that happens then then how does your spouse or your kids or whoever else figure out how to get to your stuff i mean do you even know what accounts you have that is another really nice aspect to having a password manager is it becomes a one-stop shop for here are not only all my credentials but here's all the places i have credentials now, luckily, most of these password managers also have an emergency access feature. They all work in slightly different ways, but basically they're kind of like a dead man switch um, in most cases where you don't give access directly to your spouse or your next of kin. But if you become incapacitated or you die or something like that, there, as long as you register your emergency contact ahead of time, they have the opportunity to ask that service, hey, I need access to your account. And usually there's like a waiting period. Uh, and they'll notify you. So if someone, if they, for some reason, decide they want to try to get your account before you're incapacitated or dead, uh, you will get a notice saying, hey, they want access to your account. And you could say, eh, no, not yet. I'm not, I'm not dead yet, uh, as Monty Python would say, and, and say no. But the idea being that it, you know, at some point, if, if you are unable to get to your account and someone needs to get into your accounts, and you probably want them to get into some of your accounts, like your utility bills need to get paid, your mortgage needs to get paid, at least until the house is sold or whatever. You know, there are things that need to be taken care of between the time you die and the time your estate is settled. Uh, or if you're in a coma for a long period of time or whatever, your bill's got to get paid. You need to have emergency access set up. Now, one more key aspect of that is I just, just got done telling you that you should be setting up two-factor authentication for as many accounts as you can, including your password manager. So not only do they need emergency access, to your password manager and all the credentials contained within there and maybe some other secrets too, like bank account information or social security numbers or whatever. To get into those accounts, if you've set up two-factor authentication, they also need access to your two-factor authentication device. That's usually your cell phone. And of course, your cell phone is probably locked. Is it locked with your fingerprint? Is it locked with your face? Is it locked with a pin code? Do they even know what your two-factor authentication device is? So not only do they need to be able to get emergency access to your password manager, they would need to get emergency access to your two-factor authentication device as well. So what I recommend, honestly, if, if you can put this on your calendar, once a year, just sync up with your, your family and, and go through this process of emergency access. Make sure they know where to find this stuff. Uh, make sure you've registered them with emergency access and just, you know, do a little drill like, okay, what are you going to do? If, if I, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, uh, or if I am in a coma tomorrow, you know, what do you do and make sure that they know what to do. Okay. So given all the privacy articles we just talked about today and all the horrible privacy stuff going on with tracking and oversharing of information with data brokers. Uh, I generically recommended that you try to switch to some privacy respecting services. And I left that vague on purpose. Everyone has different services they use. Everyone has certain things they depend on. Uh, I know a lot of people are very intimately tied with Google and it's hard to get away from all the Google services. Even though I tried very hard last year, I knew I was never going to fully get away from Google because I have so many friends and families that I share things with on Google that I, I need some presence in Google, but I reduced my Google footprint significantly. So that is something you could do, for example. But there are other things you could do too. You could switch to, you know, more private mobile payment services. You know, Venmo is not good for that. You could find a better VPN if you're a VPN user. You can find secure cloud storage. You can find secure and private email and secure messaging apps. You know, pick some. <laughs> pick some low-hanging fruit. And a messaging app is a good one. Try Signal this year. Get a couple of your friends to be on Signal and try moving to Signal. Try Proton. Both of these have free accounts you can try. Just, just try them and try to get a few friends on and see if you can't switch. 
I've got several links in the article uh, for other ideas if you want to check that out. The other thing I really have decided that I want to try to drive home, especially with my audience, is please try to help other people. This is the last main tip for 2023. You may have the wherewithal to do all these things I'm talking about. You have the ability to improve your security and privacy. You've read my articles. You've listened to my podcast. You've got some great ideas and maybe you've done a lot of them already. But what about your friends and family? They probably need help. And who are they going to get that help from? Why not let that person be you? And of course, I created these for Christmas, but you could use them any time of the year. I've got these downloadable coupons. If you want to formalize this as a gift, you can find the PDF. There's a link on the show notes to download these coupons and you can pick and choose and you know give them to your parents, give them to maybe your siblings that aren't less technically inclined, maybe for your kids or for your best friend or your friends, you know, find some other people and spread the love. All right. So there's a lot of other ideas. If you want to, again, look at the show notes, find my article on this. There's a lot of links to other ideas. If none of these did it for you, but find some ways to improve yourself this year. And if at all possible, find some ways to improve the privacy and security of those around you as well. So there it is your news, your dear Carrie question and your tips of the week. All right, that's going to do it this week. A couple of things I want to wrap up with before we go. Again, remind you, the listener survey, please take that. I would really like your, your feedback. Even if you like every single thing that I'm doing, let me know that. That way I won't change it because one person said, oh, I really don't like this. Please change it. So again, that's fdsd.me slash survey 2023. Also send me your dear carry questions. I'll read them here on the air. The information about that is at fdsd.me slash QNA. I will read and answer the question on the air. And regardless whether I read them on the air or not, that will put you in a drawing every month to win a free PDF copy of my book. Now, if you want even more privacy and security news, or if you want to be able to discuss these topics directly with me and other people like you, you could become a patron. Go to patreon.com and look up Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find all the information there. And if you come in at the right level, I will actually send you the list of all the candidate news articles before every new show. There's actually probably two or three times as many articles that I considered reading on the show that I don't. So if you want a curated list of all the articles that I even considered for this show, that is one of the benefits of being a patron. I also have a book club. We're reading a privacy book right now. We're reading Blown to Bits. The, this is the book that I, uh, I interviewed the authors on last fall. It's a really great book. So we're reading that together. We also just read Sandworm, which is really interesting, almost like a reads like a thriller about uh, the sandworm uh, malware, which is very interesting. And then we talk about it. So there's lots of benefits. You get some behind the scenes stuff. There's a lot of great stuff. If you're really enjoying the show, definitely consider becoming a patron. All right. I've got several great interviews in the works. Again, like I said, I'll be talking to the CEO and founder of Simple Logins shortly. That'll probably be next week. Also, Data Privacy Week is next week. I have a data privacy checklist that I update around that time. It hasn't been updated yet for this year, but I'll be doing that very soon. There is a link, of course, in the show notes to this. So you might want to check that list out and then check it, check again in another week or two when I've probably added some more stuff to it. I've been dying to talk about Apple's data protection, their advanced data protection stuff. I will get to that at some point. Uh, I will probably make that one of the tips of the week. We'll talk about that more in depth. It's really cool. And lots of great content coming your way. So if you have not subscribed already, please do. That way you won't miss any of it. My book will be out very soon. Go to fdsd.me slash book for more information. Again, right now, Amazon has got a really crazy sale on it. So if you were considering it at all, or if you wanted to get several copies for gifts or something, 
now would be a good time to go do that. It should be out very, very soon. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.